This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Time now to take an opportunity to catch up with the author of a new book. It's called Invasive Predators, Disaster on Four Small Paws. And it's author Carolyn King joins us on the line now. Morning, good to have you with us, Carolyn. Good morning. Tell us first about your own interest in, uh, in predators and what drew you to bring this book together. Uh, well, I worked on stoats and weasels all my professional life. I did my doctorate work in England on weasels, and then I was headhunted to come to New Zealand to work on stoats in 1971. So I've uh, been fortunate to have the opportunity. New Zealand is actually the best place in the world to study these animals because there's so much more funding for research on them as pests than there is in their home country as native animals. So I've been greatly privileged to work on them for a long time. What What was your starting point for this book? Well, you probably know about the uh, Predator-Free New Zealand program. And basically the, uh, the starting point of this book is the simple idea that if you want to know how to design rational future pest management, it helps to first know your enemy, everything you can possibly know about them. And we have um, addressed that in another new book called The Handbook of New Zealand Mammals, which is also just recently gone into a third edition uh, with the Otago University Press. But this book, Four Small Paws, is more about the history of them. Uh, Why did they come here? How did we get into this situation? Where did they come from? and why, and most particularly what has been done in the past to manage them, what did and didn't work in the past. And along the way, plenty of questionable decisions, right? Uh, Some of uh, the history here is quite remarkable in terms of some of the reasoning for for bringing some of these creatures to Aotearoa. What were some of the more surprising and shocking decisions that you came across? Well, the point is that all the ones that were brought in on purpose, that is, most of the ones that were brought in by the Europeans, were brought in for good reasons. They were thought to be a good thing at the time. So possums were brought in for fur, rabbits were brought in for shooting sport, hedgehogs were brought in to control garden pests, and stoats, weasels and ferrets were brought in as the natural enemy of rabbits. So all of those were brought in for for, for um, reasons that were thought good to, at the time, but the people just didn't understand how nature works. And then there's the rats and the mice and the cats, which came on their own on the ships. They lived independent populations on the ships. They couldn't have been pre- prevented. So it's a mixture of reasons that were brought at different times and for different reasons. When you look at some of those decisions in retrospect, they seem short-sighted, um, but was it really the case that they, there was no existing knowledge about what the potential long-term impacts might be? No, not at all. The people who were making these decisions were very largely influenced by the wealthy run holders of the, particularly the South Island, but also parts of the North Island, who were losing money hand over fist and on their um, uh, sheep runs because the rabbits were eating so much of the grass that was meant for the sheep. And they believed at the time uh, that the reason why the rabbits were so much out of control compared with 
in their native country was that the rabbits had been brought in without their natural enemies. So they believed that natural enemies could keep populations down or even exterminate them. So their problem, too many rabbits, had what to them was a perfectly simple uh, uh, solution. Too many rabbits, not enough predators. Solution, bring in more predators. That was how they thought at the time. But they were warned by people here and also by people in England that this was going to be disastrous. But So they knew that perfectly well, but their self-interest overruled the decision at the time. Carolyn, when did we see that start to turn around uh, in terms of some, some better decision-making? Oh, not till the end of the 1800s, really. By about 1894 or so, people were beginning to say, look, uh, there are many native species that simply can't survive on the mainland. We have to uh, set up some uh, reserves on the offshore islands to protect the species that can't cope with these, all these introductions. So it was about the 1894s or thereabouts that they set aside islands like Kapiti and Resolution uh, as reserves for the native species. The only problem was uh, that uh, the worst of the predators, like stoats, are very good swimmers and could easily swim to those islands. And you have to uh, agree that this was really only... Those islands were chosen only because they had no other use to, to people. They were not obviously places where you could establish a farm. Um, Kapiti had been used as a whaling station, so it was full of Norway rats. But still... Uh, until fairly recently, as far as we know, it was free of stoats. But stoats got even there recently. Was there, do you think, an inevitability about at least some of this? Um, we were never going to be completely isolated from these problems forever. Well, no, certainly not, because rats and mice and cats came uninvited. They came. They lived on the ships wild and every time ships uh, approached the land in any way where they could get off the ship starting when Captain Cook was in Dusky Sound um, the, the, the rats and the cats just simply walked off the ships so we would never ever have been able to be free of those but the inevitability of commercial self-interest uh, was certainly the reason why stoats, weasels and ferrets came Possums were brought because the forest didn't offer any um, commercial product, so they brought possums in to establish a fur industry. And uh, it was simply that people didn't understand how nature works. So it's a combination of uh, inescapable natural processes like um, shipboard uh, pests getting onto land by themselves and deliberate introductions that were born on the fact that people didn't understand how nature works at the time. Do we understand how nature works now? <laughs> well, to some extent more, but I mean, nature is incredibly complicated. So we, we understand a bit more now, but we're always uh, aware of the fact that, um, first of all, nature is on the side of these pests that we try to control. So the more we try to find better and better ways of killing them, the more they will find ways to get round it. So to some extent, we, we are in a, a never-ending battle. But the great thing about the Predator Free New Zealand program is that it has hugely encouraged local community groups to use conventional tools that are perfectly good at 
um, removing individual printers, although they're, they're, it's something that has to be done year after year because they never actually get rid of the whole population. But they have to keep on doing it until we can think of something better because by the time we get to something that really could actually eliminate these populations, if the local people don't continue to use conventional tools, there won't be anything left worth saving. So it's a sort of two-phase program. The local community groups, which I have absolutely unbounded admiration for, I think they're wonderful people, they have to keep on getting local damage control, at least control of what, what the pest can do to damage native fauna, keep on doing that year after year. And in the meantime, uh, further efforts are being made to find something that would have a much longer-term result. But that needs technology that we've never thought of yet. And so it's a long-term thing. It's a bit like the moonshot. We've seen examples locally of um, some excellent work out on the Otago Peninsula, for example, uh, in, the, in, in terms of that community response that you're talking about. Yes. Uh, are there other examples? Have you had an opportunity at all to consider... Um, similar problems around the world or approaches that are being taken elsewhere? Well, every country has introduced pests, of course, but the thing that makes New Zealand different from everywhere else is that our native fauna grew up without mammalian predators on the ground. It wasn't that they were without predators. They had plenty of of, um, bird and lizard predators, but they didn't have anything that hunted at night by scent. So our our native fauna were much, much more vulnerable to the introduced mammalian predators than has happened anywhere else in the world. It's interesting, isn't it, at these times when we're talking about eradication, it's a word that is being used in another con- context at the moment around the pandemic. Um, do, you, do, you, do you imagine a future where we have been successful to such a degree that we can say we have eliminated, eliminated some of these species? Oh, yes, it's it's already happening on offshore islands. Um, any island that's far enough away so that the pest can't swim back, and particularly any that's uninhabited so, by people, so that there's no reason for not using poison bait distributed from the air. They have actually, uh, in the past couple of decades, they have made enormous progress in clearing those uh, islands, eradicating those islands and allowing um, native fauna to come back. But that's part of the reason why the Predator Free New Zealand idea took off because people saw how wonderful that, the wonderful effects that you could get on Predator Free offshore islands. They said, well, why can't we do this on the mainland? But the mainland is a different kettle of fish altogether in large part it's to do with management of people at at least as much as of pests so the techniques that are available and socially acceptable to use on the mainland are different and the challenge is much worse but um, I have to say although it's true to say right now with the tools that we have right now all we can achieve is local damage control in the future we might find something that we have never thought of yet that might be possible to achieve uh, control over the whole country. Um, it's out of sight right now. But you've got to remember when Kennedy said he was going to put men on the moon by 1969. At the time he said that, 
the technology to do that it just wasn't available, had never been thought of. And in a sense, the predator-free New Zealand idea is a bit like that. And we say that this is what we plan to do. We have no idea yet how we're going to do it. That doesn't mean to say that someday it will be possible. It just isn't possible yet. But in the meantime, we can go on doing damage control by conventional tools because those wonderful local people just never give up. Carolyn, who would you most like to read this book, Invasive Predators, Disaster on Four Small Paws? Who, who needs to read it? Anybody who's interested in um, control of predators, or at least uh, minimizing the damage to our native fauna that predators do, uh, that is just about any, anybody who belongs to Forest and Bird or any of the local conservation groups, or even, and rather particularly, uh, school people who are studying conservation and native fauna and the dangers and what we have to do to protect them. So it's, it's, it's a book written for ordinary people. It's in, written in accessible, easy style. Of course, it has references because people want to know where the information came from, but you don't have to read those. The text is just easily readable for anybody, and anybody who's interested in, in the program, it's been called Restoring the Dawn Chorus. Anybody who's interested in keeping New Zealand different from everywhere else in the world um, needs to know this. Carolyn King, author of Invasive Predators, Disaster on Four Small Paws through Otago University Press. Thank you so much for taking some time to join us on the Awesome Morning Show. Thank you. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.